open up your Bibles, you've got two options. In fact, you know what, I'm going to wait. There should be on your sermon outline the two scripture passages because both Matthew and Mark talk about this. They're the only two gospel writers that do. So you've got a couple options of where you want to go, but we're going to do something different. I don't normally do this, but because both Matthew and Mark talk about this unsung hero, uh, we're going to put that those, both of those passages up on the screens today, and so you're going to be able to follow along. Normally, you're going to need to have your Bibles. You can use your Bibles, of course, today as well. Let me tell you about Ida M. Tarbell who was born November 5th, 1857. There may be one or two of you that might have been around then. By the way, I'm going to stop right there before I say anything else. See, look at that. I'm learning self-control. Your prayers are being answered. She grew up in Erie County, Pennsylvania. And she was one of the great biographers, one thought to have pioneered, listen to this, investigative journalism. If you like investigative journalism, if you like exposés on corrupt criminals, organiz organizations, then you probably can route that back to Ira, or Ida rather, Tarbell. Her work led to the exposure of the unfair practices, listen to this, of the Standard Oil Company. If you've been out to Erie, Pennsylvania, you see a lot of ghost towns out there. We camped out there several years ago. This, their corruption was rampant. And the government finally stepped in, broke up their monopoly. On the 80th birthday of Ida's, someone asked her to name the greatest person that she had ever met. Here's what she said. The greatest person I have ever met is somebody that nobody knows anything about. Now, I want you to take that thought for a second. Because I think you've probably met some incredibly great people that nobody really knows about. And God uses them to do unbelievably awesome things in the kingdom of God. In fact, listen, now look at me, because you've got to get this. This whole series has been to drive this point home to everybody here. If you, brother and sister in Christ, have faith, God will use you in incredible ways. Do you believe that? Yeah, that was weak. All right, so a couple strong people here of faith. Do you really believe that God can use you? Well, we got to get that into this series. We got to get that into this passage. I hope you found that this Unsung Hero series has been encouraging you. We're about to meet a nameless mother. You know, a lot of these unsung heroes, they don't have names. I think that's incredibly awesome. God didn't even let us know their name. We saw the woman in the city last week. Today we're going to see a Syrophoenician woman. We don't know her name, but we are going to see faith. Now watch this. That amazes even Jesus. Now do you have a faith that amazes Jesus? Well, you're going to see what that kind of faith looks like. Because that's the faith you ought to have. That's the faith I ought to have. And our passage begins, well, depending on where you're going to be, but I'm beginning in verse 24. You can see it up on the screen. It's going to be in Mark chapter 7 that we start. And here it is. From there he arose, he being Jesus, and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now before we see where they're going and why they're going there, we need to look back at the beginning of chapter 7 in Mark 
and see what they're leaving behind. Now, this is the way you study the Bible. Now, look at me for a second. If you're going to be the students of God's word that we're aiming you to become and to be, then you've got to get the context. So if they're moving somewhere, listen, you've got to know this, then they're moving there for a reason, and that reason is going to make clear, clear, clear understanding when you look back to see what they're leaving. So they're going somewhere. You've got to find out where they were. And verse 1 says this. In fact, if you get in chapter 6, the, the latter part of Mark 6, you know they're in Gennesaret. That's a town near the Sea of Galilee. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But verse 1 of chapter 7 says this. They were there where the Pharisees had gathered to him with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem. And they're angry with Jesus. Now listen, these are spiritual leaders. If you don't know who Pharisees and scribes are, that's fine. They're the Jewish spiritual leaders. Pharisees are the pastors of the Jewish people. They're, they're kind of like lawyers. The scribes are the lawyers. Pharisees are the pastors. And they work together. And they've come from Jerusalem. Listen, Jerusalem is 75 miles south. So they've come three days journey by walking to get to see Jesus and they hate him. They're not there on a friendly social visit. They're angry with Jesus and they're offended. Now look at Mark 7. They're offended because some of his disciples, in fact, probably all of them, ate with unwashed hands. Now, moms, I know that's a travesty. I know you're cringing. Why would Jesus let them do such a thing? Doesn't he know the bacteria? You must get that antibacterial little squirt in your hand. That's not what this is. This isn't a hygiene issue. This is a moral issue, and I'm going to make that clear for you. And the Pharisees had been teaching for a long time that if you eat with unclean hands, listen, watch this, it will make you unfit to worship God. Listen, if you ate today, and you didn't ritually, I'll explain that, clean your hands, then you should not have been worshiping today. You should not have been worshiping through these songs. According to the Pharisees, the, this is a really big deal to them. In fact, it's one of the biggest deals you can imagine. And now watch this. God did require the washing of hands for priests, the washing of feet as well, by the way, before they would serve in the tabernacle. But you get to 200 years before Christ walked the planet, and it became an incredibly complex system for the Jewish people. Listen to this, and I'll explain it. The Mishnah, that, by the way, don't be scared of that term. The Mishnah is the oral law. They compiled a bunch of oral traditional teachings, and they put it into a book called the Mishnah. It had 35 pages on how to wash your dishes and your daily implements. 35 pages. One rabbi taught this, whosoever has his abode in the land of Israel, or in other words, if you've got your home in the land of Israel and you eat your common food with rinsed hands, you can be assured that you're going to get eternal life. Did you hear that? They're equating eternal life, salvation, with washing their hands ritually. This is where it had gotten in the Mishnah. You get to the time of Christ, and inner holiness, inner purity, inner cleanliness was thought to be obtainable by washing your hands and your feet. 
This is where rabbinical teaching had aimed. The washings, they said, were necessary because there were defilements all around them. Well, they're in Gennesaret. Remember, I told you that at the end of chapter 6 in Mark. That's a town in Galilee. It's got a lot of Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. By the way, most of us are Gentiles. And the Jewish people were taught, this is what, if you were a Jew and you grew up in a synagogue, you grew up with a Pharisee or a scribe teaching you, this is what you would have been taught. And by the way, this is what you would have believed. That the Gentiles, that would be almost all of us, and Samaritans, who are half Jew, half Gentile, and dead bodies. Do you get those three categories? Samaritans, Gentiles, dead bodies. All three of them, if you touch them, would render you morally unclean. In other words, you're spiritually contaminated. So they really didn't like Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus really didn't have any regard for their teachings in this area. He didn't really care about external washings. In fact, he swept them aside. Here's what he's teaching, and I hope you're getting this because now we're driving deeper. The problem was not unclean hands. The problem is an unclean heart that's defiled because of sin, not because you touched an unclean person or an unclean thing. You see, the problem is this. Every single person is a sinner. If you're morally unfit to worship God, if you're spiritually contaminated, it's because you, just like me, we've sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Now listen, some of you, and I know this because I talk to a lot of people, some of you are probably thinking, I'm a pretty good person. In fact, I had somebody recently tell me that their daughter stopped coming to church, not this church, the church that she was going to, because the message kept brushing up against her sinfulness, and it was eroding her self-esteem. It's not the first time I've heard that. That charge has been laid many, many times by gospel preaching. But gospel preaching says this, that you and I, We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, Romans chapter 3 says. That even the very good things, now watch this, even the best things that we have done, you know those things where you see somebody that's in need and you go and you meet that need, nobody asks you, you just did it. Even the best things we've done fall short of how God would have done it. Because God would have done it with the aim to bring himself glory. God would have done it with the means of impeccability, which means sinlessness, utter cleanliness, without fault, not even a trace of pride, not even a whim of self-congratulation, not even that little insidious whispery thought, boy, I hope she really appreciated that. That's the way God operates. The way God works is, listen, it's not about us. It's about his glory. Even the very best that we have done falls short of his holiness. That's what spiritually contaminates us. That's what renders us unfit to be 
in God's presence, God must do something to be able to clean us up on the inside. Now watch, and wash, washing your hands and washing your feet will not do it. So Jesus begins to preach the gospel. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they had created this massive racial divide between Jew and Gentile, pious Jews, faithful, devout Jews, thought that Gentiles, listen to this, Gentiles were created by God for fuel to burn in hell. Did you understand that? That's the way the most pious Jewish mind thought, that a Gentile was God's tinder to be able to keep the fires of hell burning. That's what they believed. And to them, only Israel was loved by God. All the other nations he hated. And it was against their law. Did you know this? It was against the law of the Jews to aid a Gentile mother who was giving birth to a baby. Because then, if you aided her, you'd be responsible for bringing another Gentile into the world. That would be sin, they would teach. And if a Jew was traveling into Israel from Gentile territory... They would shake the dirt and the dust off their feet. They didn't even want Gentile dirt in Israel land. If a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl married a Gentile, now watch this, ladies, watch this, guys, if you're not married. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or vice versa, they held a funeral. Because touching a Gentile in any way physically is tantamount to death. Friends, the disciples believed this. Jesus was rescuing them. Jesus was delivering them from racism, from an ethical divide. He was rescuing them from a false belief that they're spiritually contaminated by what they touch rather than by a heart that's filled with sin. The disciples needed to see how much God loves the Gentiles, get this prejudicial upbringing out of their hearts so that they can fulfill the mission that Christ is about to give them. So listen, it begs us to ask, and I'm ready, this is where you jump into the sermon. Because I gave you a lot of contextual, cultural background. I don't know, if you're like me, that's really interesting. That sort of colors the text. I didn't know that. Wow. Now I get why they were so angry at Jesus. Now I get why he's preaching about ritual washings. I didn't know that before. That's really interesting, but you know what? You're going to walk out of here with more information and an unchanged heart. That's not the goal of gospel preaching. So you got to get into the text. So let me get you into the text. Is there a prejudice? Yeah, you got to answer this honest. Is there a prejudice in your heart toward a particular person or a particular people. Now, before you might want to wag wag your head no, I would invite you to stop and pause and think because wired into most Americans, very, very deeply down there and embedded are prejudicial divisions. You know, I was surprised last weekend I took my my nine-year-old on the motorcycle and he wanted to go hike at Jacobsburg, so we rode around for a while up in Wind Gap, and then we'd stop at Jacobsburg and hike, and, and he's singing a song that, um, I don't know, Linda or somebody in children's ministry taught them, taught him, and I asked him, I said, do you know the song that Jesus loves the little children? He says, no, I don't know that song, so we started singing, and I'm horrible, birds are flying to get away from me, 
I don't care. Deer were trampling. It doesn't matter. But I'm singing to him this song, but I was surprised that he doesn't know that song. I want him to know that Jesus loves the children. There, there is no skin color. There's no race of people that God loves more or less than any other. Listen, God loves human beings. And if there is a prejudicial mind or a prejudicial heart inside of you, listen, the gospel wants to kill it. The gospel wants to replace it with love that says, you know what? The ground is level at the foot of the cross for every person on this planet. And he wants people from every people group to be saved. You know, Revelation 7, that every tongue and every nation the tribe, they're all going to be worshiping God. God is rescuing people out of every people group. Now watch this. There's 11,000 people groups on this planet. Guess what? There's 6,000 of them who still have not ever heard the gospel. 6,000. Whose job is it to get that gospel to them? It's not those missionaries that we send out or that churches send out. We all participate in this. And I think David Platt is right. Matthew 24 is where he learned it, that Jesus is not coming back until the gospel gets to all 11,000 people groups. Friends, we've got to get it out there. But you will not get it out there if you don't think that they deserve it. See, this is the mission killer that the disciples were saddled with. This is what Jesus is correcting in them. And he takes them on a short-term mission trip to teach them this. Look at verse 24, we get to watch it. So he arose and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre was about 30 to 40 miles away from the northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's a two, about a day and a half walk. Tyre is lower, southern. You go to the north, you get to Sidon. They're seacoast areas. These are on the Mediterranean, friends. These are vacation resort hotspots. They are incredible. Listen, if you've been to any coast that has been built up as a resort and you get there, you land, you get there by the taxi and you unpack and you see from the veranda or the, the overhang balcony of your hotel and you can see those blue-green waters and all of a sudden stress begins to leave. Listen, they're headed on a vacation. His disciples are thinking. They have to be thinking. We've had nothing, nothing but persecution. The Pharisees, the scribes, they're following us. They hate us. They're reviling us. They're trying to kill Jesus. And he's taking us out of Jewish land. He's taking us up into Gentile seacoast resort towns. And we're going to get a little break from ministry. They're on vacation. And why else would Jesus go there? Remember? Gentile dirt is inferior to Jewish dirt. Why else would Jesus take us into Gentile land if it's not to get away from the Pharisees and give us a break? And Matthew hints at this. They went away from there and withdrew. You get that term, withdrew, and all of a sudden you get that little whispery thinking of Matthew. Wow, we get away from people. We get away from the limelight. We get away from demon-filled people. By the way, you know what the Jews would teach? They would teach that if you ate your food with unclean hands, then there was a demon called Shibtah who would ride on that food into your mouth and contaminate and possess your body. 
that's what they taught. So we get away from all of that. By the way, look what's coming. There's going to be a demon-possessed little girl. Now, I don't want anything to do with, with the Pharisees. I don't want really anything to do, Matthew, writing with, with the Gentiles. We are withdrawing. And Mark says Jesus did not want anyone to know, and the disciples have got to be thinking, yes, a break. By the way, that's how I take my vacations. Listen, I love you guys, but when I go on vacation, I don't want to see any of you. And I don't think you want to see me. I've invited myself on your vacations all the time, and none of you take me. I understand. I get it. You don't want to see me. You need a break from me. I need a break from you. This is what they're going through. This is a ministry break, a refresher trip. It's a mini vacation. No Pharisees, no Sadducees, no relentless opposition. We're in Gentile land. But Jesus, now watch, Jesus does nothing without a purpose. Even vacations have a purpose. Because all of a sudden, someone pops up that derails the disciples' expectations. Look at verse 25 in Mark. Immediately, a woman whose little daughter was possessed. Listen, we withdrew, Jesus. We're getting away from everybody. I don't want anybody to know I'm there. All of a sudden, a woman with a daughter who's possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, listen, you got to get this. you got to get into the story. Haven't you had an exhausting week? At least once in your life, sorry, that was a little sarcasm, and you get home for the weekend and all you want is to just sit in your recliner and watch a ball game. All you want is something to drink. All you want is something to eat. You don't want any pressures. You don't want any stress. You lower, the, you raise rather the drawbridge and your fortress is locked into solitude. Listen, have you had that week and all of a sudden work calls and says, we got an emergency, we need you to come in? I've had those weeks. I'm sure you've had them too. And here we go. We got them on vacation. We got them taking a break. We got them withdrawing. And all of a sudden, a woman whose daughter was demon-possessed throws herself down at the feet of Christ. And she is our unsung hero. And we meet her for the very first time on her knees begging Jesus for a miracle. Now, I'm going to ask you, and I'm going to ask you to really answer this. Have you ever begged God for anything? Well, I know for a fact there's people in our church who have begged God to heal their children, begged God to heal their parents, begged God to heal their neighbors. Listen, I know you've done that. I know you've begged God for a job. I know people have begged God to get out of a sin that they cannot stop. Sometimes to stop cigarette smoking or drinking compulsively and alcoholically, they've begged and pleaded with God to help. Well, this is what she's doing. She is down at the feet of Jesus, Jesus, and she's begging for help. Now, listen, some of us, and I'm going to kind of think maybe guys, some of us don't beg for anything. We're men. Right? We have testosterone flowing through our veins. What would it take for you to beg God? What would it take for you to throw yourself down on your knees and to plead with God? 
It's in the deepest grief I, and I've done a lot of funerals. I've done a lot, I've waded into a lot of grief. But the deepest grief I have ever encountered in my entire life is the grief of a parent whose child has died. There's nothing deeper than that. And these experiences help me feel the force of Mark's words. Here it is again. She came and she fell down at his feet and she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. L- listen, you got to get the Greek. Literally, she is pleading repeatedly that's the tense of the greek over and over and over and over my daughter is badly demonized that's the greek language over and over crying it out to jesus begging from her knees tim keller wrote this once there are cowards there are regular people there are heroes and then there are parents Parents are really not on are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save it. Now, moms and dads, is that not true? You simply do what it takes to save. She's begging. Now you got to get the drama. She's begging. She's on her knees. My bet. My child is is badly demonized over and over. Now watch. The leadership team of Jesus. Watch the disciples who are going to change the world. By the way, look at me. You owe your spiritual salvation and lineage to the disciples, to this group. But watch them here. And his disciples, Matthew 15, came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. It's the same Greek word for begging. It's the same Greek tense of continuous repetition. We've got the mother begging for help. And we've got the early church, the disciples, begging for relief from her. I mean, this is incredible. She's begging, Jesus, my daughter is badly demonized. They're over here begging Jesus, send her away. In other words, we're on vacation. We don't want to deal with this. Now, before you judge the disciples, it's not really that difficult to understand what is in their hearts toward this woman. Look what Mark says, verse 26. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. If you're going to build a profile on this woman, here's what it's going to look like. She's a woman. She's already at a disadvantage in both the Jewish and the Greek ancient worlds. She's a Gentile who, in Jewish thought, was excluded from the favor and promises of God. God doesn't love the Gentiles. She's a Syrophoenician by birth, meaning she's a Roman citizen, and Rome were the hated captors of the Jews. And Matthew adds that she was a Canaanite, one of which Israel was told to wipe off the planet. Listen, God told Israel to wipe the the Canaanites, kill them all, wipe them off the planet. She's a Canaanite. Even worse, she's from Tyre. You know where? You know why Tyre is famous? It's the center. It's the original center of Baal, that false worship that tripped Israel up. Jezebel, wife of Queen Ahab, who led Israel astray, killed the prophets. This is her hometown. Her father was the king here. So to the disciples, as we've just built this profile, she embodies, listen, one of the most unclean pictures of human humanity possible. One of the most difficult people in the world for them 
to offer mercy. Now, Christian, remember, we've got to get ourselves back in this. Isn't it amazing for us, a Christian brother and sister, I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me. Isn't it amazing for us that we who have been given such mercy from God would have such a difficult time giving mercy to others? How often do you judge people? And then realize later, I was so wrong. And it wasn't my place to judge anyway. I mean, Peter... The apostle who fell down at Jesus' knees earlier in Luke 5, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Or Matthew, I mean, I mean, why would Peter, who understand his, understood his sin, judge her and reject her? Or Matthew, the most despised Jew of the disciples, he was a former tax collector. Listen, he's a Roman employee, but he's a Jew. He's a traitor to his own people. They hated him. Why would Matthew judge this woman? And withhold mercy and beg for Jesus to send her away. She cries out over and over for mercy. They cry out over and over for space. She's desperate. They're bothered. She wants her, her daughter's life back. They want her to just go away. And suddenly, watch this. The, the microscope of the gospel starts to adjust. Can't you feel the dials turning? It adjusts on their hearts. And all of a sudden, we get to see their hearts. Who cares what they're saying? The words come from their hearts. We get to see their hearts. How can they see this woman's great need and respond the way that they did? Well, we're going to look at their hearts after we look at ours. So who is the hardest person that you know of to show mercy to? Got a face come in your mind? Who is the hardest person in the world for you to be merciful for, towards? Maybe it's a family member. Now, let's, I'm going to give you some options here to get your creative thinking, your holy imagination moving. Maybe it's a family member who's wronged you. Maybe it's a person who has hurt you deeply and damaged you. Or maybe it's someone who has a skin color different than you or who is ethnically different than you are. Or maybe somebody who is unapologetically living a lifestyle that you don't agree with. Or someone who is a staunch supporter of a political party you hate. Or a neighbor who has made your life so full of stress and difficulty. Or somebody who speaks a foreign language even though they live in America and they dare to wear a turban. Who is the person that is hardest for you to show mercy towards? Could be yourself. But who's coming to mind? If so, listen, listen, you got to hear this. Whosever, whoever's face just popped up in your mind, that's your Syrophoenician woman. Now, I hope you hear this because this is one of the most important things I'm going to tell you. You ready? God has that person in your life to remind you of the mercy that he has given you and to teach you to give that mercy to somebody else. To show you again that you could not save yourselves, God had to save you. He did it through Jesus, his son. He did it for the fame of his glory. And Jesus knew, he knew that the disciples looked 
at the external. They didn't look at the internal, that they had the same wrong theology that the Pharisees taught, that they made the outside uh, make a person unclean rather than the heart or the inside is what contaminates us. They didn't understand that he came to save us from eternal condemnation for a life of joyful service to him as we join him on mission. Jesus takes these disciples, he takes them to Gentile territory, and watch what he does. You ready? He forces out in the open what was secretly living in their hearts. You know what? God does that to you, and God does that to me. And he's using our unsung hero, this Syrophoenician woman, watch this, to teach his disciples a thing or two about his mercy. Look what she says, Matthew 15. Look at verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Did you hear that? Do you pay attention to the very words of the scriptures? Have mercy on me. Look, she's not asking for something that she's owed. She's not claiming that God is obligated to help her. Or that she deserves it. Listen, this is mercy that we're talking about. And the nature of mercy is that it's given to those who don't deserve it. But shockingly, standoffishly, Jesus said, does not say a word. Verse 23. She's begging over and over. My daughter is badly demonized and he's not speaking. And so his disciples take that as an opportunity that he agrees with them and says, Jesus, send her away, send her away, send her away. And then he says to the disciples, get the drama. Matthew 15, 24, he says to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And then he says even more shockingly, Mark 7, verse 27, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Calls her a dog. Listen, he calls her and her daughter a dog, plural. Why? Why has Jesus treating her what seems so terribly, a woman in such anguish over her daughters, over her daughter. You know, a lot of years ago, several years ago, there was a feminist scholar who wrote a scathing article about Christ's response to this woman, arguing in, his, in her article that Jesus obviously wasn't sinless after all. His chauvinistic manner wronged this woman. He sinned against this woman. And he does say, look what it says, he calls both her and her daughter dogs. So is this feminist scholar right? Well, let's take a little bit deeper look. Jews viewed Gentiles as dogs. I've been called by a Jew a dog, goy. That's the word, or goyim, or goyim. They viewed Gentiles as mangy curs, dogs who were unclean and undefiled. Leviticus lists dogs as unclean animals. Gentiles were unclean human beings. 
But Jesus doesn't use the word for a man, mangy, unclean cur of a dog. He uses a different Greek word, a word for little puppies, which is massively different. And these little puppies were allowed in their homes, into Jewish homes, and they received the scraps of food fallen or thrown from the table. And all through, now listen, what's he doing all through the Old Testament? God's saying to Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you hear that? God's going to make Israel a big beacon, and a beacon of God's glory, and that light of God's salvation is going to get to the Gentiles through Israel. Because Israel was never, ever intended to be the end of God's saving purposes. They were the means to the end. The glory of God's salvation would spread to the whole world through Israel. The Apostle Paul, he got to understand this. He understood the mission of God. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Watch what he says. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Let the children be fed first, Jesus says. And what he's saying is this, the door of salvation is open right then and now for Israel. And it's going to open for the Gentiles in just a little bit. Because Paul is going to be sent to the Gentiles. He came to get the gospel to the Jews. Now you've got to understand something. If you're going to make sense of this passage. Not right to take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs. You've got to understand, they didn't have tableware. They have forks, spoons, and knives, though some of us, I've observed, don't use them. So Jesus is saying, that was a joke. Did you lighten up? Jesus is saying that the door of salvation was at that time open for Israel. The door for the Gentile was still future. Now what he's saying is this. They didn't have tableware. You know what they would do? They would take chunks of bread and they would wipe their soiled hands. They ate with their hands. And they would wipe their soiled hands on a chunk of bread, and then they would throw the soiled bread to the floor for the dogs. That's how they ate. And so our hero, this woman, replies, Yes, Lord, verse 28, Mark 7, Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She understood. She knew enough to ask, God, Jesus, would you crack open your blessings for me, a Gentile? I know you're here first for the Jews. But I believe that you could crack it open for me now. Now you've got to hear this. This is the best part of the whole message. Look at verse 28 of Matthew 15. Oh woman, Jesus says, great is your faith. She's amazed. She is amazed. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly what an incredible event this woman believed she had faith that she could ask of jesus who was the lord and the son of david the messiah she could ask of jesus to heal her daughter crack open the blessing and he would do it and jesus said great is your faith all right, so this is really interesting. I, I'm like loving this part of the research. And then all of a sudden I said, okay, well, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us? How do we walk out of here different? Christian, you and I, how do we leave here changed? 
I'm going to give you four reasons I think this is life-changing. The four things we need to learn. Here's the first. When you are in the midst of a trial or difficulty, do you go straight to Jesus? There's a comical part of the story. There's a part that when you get it makes you laugh. It makes you shake your head and wonder at the stupidity of the disciples. And it's here. Send her away, they said to Jesus, for she is crying out after us. And the, the point of it was she wasn't crying out after them. She didn't even talk to them. She didn't want anything from the disciples. She was crying out after Jesus. What hubris. What pride. What arrogance. She wants something from us. No. Knew where to go. She knew where to go. She went to Jesus, fell down at his feet, not theirs. She's crying out for his help because he is the God of mercy. Listen, that's the first thing you got to learn. That's the first thing I got to learn. You get in a trial? Listen, God's trials are designed to submerge you. Do you understand that? They're designed to get you under the waters of difficulty. So that you have to cry out, not so that you can tread that water of the trial in your own strength. He wants you under the water so that you got to reach up your hand for his mercy. And he will sustain you by his righteous right arm. Well, the second thing she learned and that we can learn from her, she didn't allow pride to come into her heart. She didn't demand that Jesus do what she deserved. She didn't claim her own goodness. She didn't barter with God's mercy with her innocence, or the innocence, by the way, of her little girl. That was a mistake I made when my father was dying. I tried the barter technique. God, my father has served you his entire life. He's been an elder at the church his entire life. He's dying. I think you know. I think, he's, I think you know he's got prostate cancer. It spread through his body. Snapped his thigh when he tried to walk. They put a titanium rod in it snapped the rod when he tried to walk. That's how powerful the radiation was. Listen, God, you know what? He's been pretty faithful with just healing because he's been faithful. That's bartering. And God says, I don't have mercy for that. My mercy goes when you have nothing in your hand. So you appeal to the mercies of God. You bring your hands that are open and empty to him. And don't think that any good thing that you're ever going to do is going to move God to act. It will be mercy and mercy alone, something you do not deserve. Well, the third thing that we can learn from her, I think, is that her faith was placed in the right object. This is huge. She called Jesus Lord, Son of David. Did you get that? That's unbelievable. She knew Jesus. That's a title for the Messiah. That's the title for the Savior of God. And a lot of people, listen, I hear it. A lot of people tell me, Pastor Tim, I believe. But what do you believe in? They've got misplaced faith. They've got a belief in an object that cannot save them. And just believing doesn't accomplish miracles. It's believing on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even the demons believe, James says, in one God. They shudder, the Bible says. But that's not saving faith. This woman didn't have faith in herself. She didn't have faith that, you know what, things are just going to work out. I know they will. She didn't have faith in the disciples. She had faith in one object, Jesus Christ. And that's where any of us should ever trust. If you have faith in anything else, you've got misplaced faith. 
and it will not produce the power of God. And the way we learn to trust Jesus, watch this, is by knowing Jesus more and more through his word. You want faith in the right object? You want faith that's growing? Then listen, you've got to put your study time and your reading time and your confidence into the word of God and let it get into your life. Prayer that moves God's hand comes from his child who knows him intimately. Did you hear that? I'm going to say that again. Prayer that moves God's hand comes from his child who knows him intimately. Puritan Phillips Brooks once said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Do you understand that? That is unbelievably colossal and building your faith. Prayer is not you pleading with God to overcome his reluctance. He was not doing that. The Syrophoenician did not finally overcome the reluctance of Jesus. He laid hold of his willingness by faith. And that's what we are to learn to do. Somehow she knew that Jesus, what he said, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. She trusted it. But there's one final, very brief thing that I think we can learn, and here it is. You ready? Here it is. This is huge. Turn your cell phones off before church. That's a final thing. No, I have one more. Finally, it's this. We are to love the undeserving with the gospel. Now, some of you are trying to find out whose cell phone that is. Come on, forget it. Look at me. Who cares? This is huge. This is a, one of three most important things I'm going to tell you today. And this is how we're ending. We are to love the undeserving with the gospel. The power of God for salvation, friends, that's your mission, Christian. That's my mission. That's our calling. And God is showing it to us in this passage. And he's teaching you, when you learn to love those who are most difficult to love, your power of your witness will be most great. Who is it that is hard for you to give mercy to? Who is it that is hard for you to love? God is going to take you into their territory. He probably already has. And he's going to teach you his heart. And when you get that heart, the heart of Jesus, your witness will have power. And you will see eyes open to the glories of God. Amen.